welcome to Jazz Avec Moi, the podcast where we will talk about everything from life, career, and entrepreneurship from a TCK perspective. My name is Michaela Mutoni, and I will be your host. Hi, everyone. This week, I'm speaking with Zoa Matondo. I've met Zoa about 12 years ago when I first moved to Montreal to study, and we have remained friends ever since. I wanted to interview Zoa because he has this love of the African continent, this love of Zimbabwe, and he aims to act upon it. You know, he's very passionate about policy, impact that policies can have on people. I also wanted to talk about just his experience, you know, what has led him to be interested in politics, what has inspired him to keep pushing when times are hard, and how he basically transferred his learnings from life and from working in law into what he is doing today with Hands Africa. Hope you enjoy it. All right. Thank you so much, Zua, for being here with me today. It is my pleasure, Michaela. Uh, thank you for having me. I'm honored that you would think of me worthy to be on your podcast. But thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited. Of course. You're like my big brother, man. Everybody has to learn from your wisdom. You will know, <laughs> be the, judge, the judges of that, if that is the I can share. I can share for 45 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm really excited to speak to you. So for the people who might not know you, who is Zua? How would you introduce yourself? Oh, who is Zua? That is a good question. I am a son of Africa, S-O-N, and I am uh, the son of Zimbabwe, S-U-N. And my name is Zua, which means sun, sunshine in my language, Shona in, in Zimbabwe. And um, that is the core of who I am, the core of what motivates me for a lot of the things that I, I do, a lot of the way I see the world, how I interact with people. And, you know, beyond that, I am the proud son of, um, of my parents, who I'm blessed to still have with me today. I have two younger brothers, so I'm the oldest of three boys. And as you can imagine, that, that shapes you in a certain way. My mom would always joke that, you know, I'll say to her, Mama, do you not... Uh, did you never want a daughter? And she's like, no, Papa, I always knew that I was supposed to be the mother of boys. And, I'm, and you know, if you meet my mom, you'll be so shocked because she is an extremely short woman. But as many of us who know, African moms, nothing to mess with. Mm-hmm. So these are the people who shaped a lot of, the, uh, of who I am. And my family is very, very important to me. Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. First, I will note that you didn't say anything about what you do when you introduce yourself, which is quite deep, in my opinion, because that's what most people, I I know I would uh, revert to that, but it's not really who you are. I mean, it's part of what you do, but it doesn't necessarily define you, right? I definitely agree with that. I mean, if you look at my quote unquote CV, Mm -hmm. you'll see that I've done so many different things. And at each stage, I feel I've always never tried to let any single item define who I am. Mm. Uh, And like I said, you know, 
what's been constant and consistent throughout all of them is what motivates me. Mm-hmm. So I will have a certain experience, uh, whether it be from a degree I've chosen or a job I have or an organization I start, a consistent theme of my love for my, my continent, a love for my, my country. And overall, if you can, in terms of this putting under umbrella, when I said the son of Africa and uh, the son of Zimbabwe, I mean, that's it's truly what I mean. It gives me a sense of purpose yeah. and it ties everything together, what I do. So if you see me sweeping on the streets, just know somehow it's linked to, <laughs> to my love for Africa and my, <laughs> and my love for my country because there will be a reason why I'm doing it. And, um, you know, that's... That's how I see it, honestly. And it's helped me, right? Because there are times when situations are not really ideal and people get very confined by their circumstance. And you start to think you are this in a situation that is either depressed or, or not ideal. And you let that sort of cocoon you into a certain area, mm-hmm. um, into a certain definition of yourself or view of yourself. Yeah. And I think that's really dangerous as well. So, yeah, that's why I didn't mention what I do that's or what I've done. I had to go through that process because I was always so proud of everything I had done until mm. Mm. it didn't work. And then I was like, oh, oh so who am I when and I don't have a job? <laughs> exactly, right? And uh, listen, I've known you for over 10 years. Yeah. And, you know, we're very similar in many ways. Eight type personalities high achievers. And I think it's very easy for people like us to get caught up in those moments of, of, you know, success, if you want to put it that way, of progress, if you want to put it that way as well. Mm -hmm. And sort of forget that you're more than just those achievements. You're more than just those gold stars on the reports and those A stars on your transcript. Or A star for those of you who don't know, it's uh, (laughs) it's A level. Let's just say A. These British people, they call it nice. Um, <laughs> but essentially, it's very, it's very challenging. And, you know, I've had to go through, through moments of, of failure, for sure. Yeah. Um, that have really humbled me. And, you know, with the love of, of those around me and also love of self, I've yeah. had to sort of pick myself up and, you know, say, no, listen, Zua, you're not this circumstance or you're not this situation and keep things moving in a positive direction. So, yeah. Amazing. Mm-hmm. So since I met you, we met at McGill when I was a fresh undergrad for for, for Context. And so I was like immediately in big brother mode. And we be- that's how we became friends. Ten- and here we are 10 years later. But since I met you, you've always had this love of Zimbabwe, but not just love of Zimbabwe because we all love our countries, but you actually have action behind it. You say, I love Zimbabwe and I want to be involved. I want to know what's going on. I want to actually do tangible things. Where do you think that love, but also that will or wish of doing something and taking action comes from? That's a really good question. See, for, for those who, who don't know too much the history of Zimbabwe, 
Zimbabwe used to be Rhodesia, which was a breakaway from the, from the British Empire. And my parents were born in Rhodesia. So <laughs> as um, many of us take for granted, I always chat with my friends from, from Ghana, wherever, you know, independence. Their parents were born in independent Ghana, mm-hmm. you know, which is amazing. But I always say my parents weren't. And, you know, they had to, you know, basically flee the country in their teens to go outside to further their education, to be able to build the life that eventually were able to give towards me. And I have several members in the family who were very involved politically mm. in my country, in particular, pulling us across the threshold of independence, which happened in 1980. So I grew up in this ecosystem and in this family of people who had not just a love for country, but a deep-rooted love for country and who had actually mm-hmm. sacrificed a lot. And in Zimbabwe, our generation, my generation, is called, they're called born freeze. We were born in a free Zimbabwe. So I was born mm-hmm. in the late 80s, 1987. I'm not going to hide the age. I'm still a young man. <laughs> <laughs> and um, seven years after independence, my parents finally were able to come back to Zimbabwe after independence to build their lives in Zimbabwe. These things, as I grew up and observing those around me and the service they were doing for the country, really started, you know, started an understanding in me about what it means to be Zimbabwean beyond just being a passive citizen, but yeah. being an active citizen. Mm-hmm. And I was born in a situation where I was fortunate enough to be able to go to certain schools, acquire certain education, and get certain opportunities. And while at the same time being able to have traveled across the country and interact with so many different people growing up, I knew from a pretty early stage in my life that I wanted to serve my people in some way, somehow. Yeah. Uh, and this is probably from when I was about 13, when I was becoming somewhat politically conscious. It, it really started a deep-rooted desire inside, a sort of a fire burning. And I found myself more intrigued by, you know, just even simple political issues going on locally, internationally involving Africa, where, you know, in my spare time as a teenager, I'm not really doing things that others do. I'm reading papers on history and politics. This is really what sort of got me to a stage where I knew whatever stage I would be in life, I would be trying to put into action this love for country and for content that I developed. Mm. And um, I think the next step that really, really pushed things on a grander scale was when I actually came abroad to, to study at McGill as an international student. Mm-hmm. And there are many things that happen to students when they go overseas, African students, you know, our own struggles, our finding of community. And I was really fortunate that when I arrived at McGill, there was a very strong African community. Yeah. Now, Mo- Montreal or Montreal, as they would say, is a place with a lot of uh, Francophone Africans as well. And I had never been to Francophone Africa before leaving Zimbabwe. I'd been to other parts of Africa, but never been to Francophone Africa. So here I am now meeting my brothers and sisters from parts of the continent I heard about. Yeah. And this feeling of... Pan-Africanism really then started inside me. And I just loved and appreciated the different cultures that we would have and uh, from the different parts of the continent. And I said, there's so much more that's bringing us closer together than the differences that we may have culturally, which in itself is not even a bad thing because we're so rich as a people. We're so rich as a continent. Yeah. And I just wanted to celebrate that through my actions and through whatever work 
and purpose that I felt was going to be before me. So that's really where it came from. Wow. I did not know that. So this is... <laughs> <laughs> this is the point. This is the, this is the point of this amazing conversation. You know, exactly. One, that's the point of the amazing conversation. But also it's like two, we've been friends for 10 years. What do we talk about? (laughs) You were just seeing that. You were just seeing the action, right? You weren't seeing, I wasn't exploring the motivation with you, you know, behind it. Right. Yeah. And, um, because I remember you, that was one of the things that really marked me about you. I don't know if that's proper English, but that I really noticed about you because we would have these conversations, right? Uh, where you would encourage me, I guess, to be more involved from a policy perspective and to sort of find like my place and my way of serving. And I would, it was always at the back of my mind, like, yeah, you were so passionate about it, but in the active way that now I understand where it came from. And I understand that it's also the example that you had growing up around you. And it was just very real for you when you saw the impact of being active has um, on people. Absolutely. And it was a way for me to learn and grow as well. You know, probably more so than me giving, I was receiving 10 times more, right? Mm -hmm. So by choosing to do a certain initiative or be involved in a certain group, and let's just talk undergrad, being involved with the Miguel African Student Society, shout out to them. The amount of people I'd get to meet even more, the amount of conversations people would, would have with people who are on the exec, the shows that would put on the cultural shows, the, you know, that was the stressful, <laughs> the stressful time though. <laughs> but then learning and seeing all these different um, cultural dances, whether it's a, a, a students from Rwanda going to do a traditional dance, yeah. um, people from Benin, from Cameroon, you know, doing different things, some gumbo dancing from South yeah. Africa, you know, that. and, you know, you're receiving so much richness yeah. and, with every interaction, I swear to you, I fell more and more in love with my continent. And then, of course, being able to visit these countries as time went on, it was just amazing. And I received so much more than from what I gave. Yeah, for sure. And it's so true huh, about the Pan-Africanism and how you realize how different our cultures are. Like, for example, I'd never met anybody from Zimbabwe before meeting you. Or had I met a Nigerian? I don't think I had met a Nigerian either. I mean, we lived in Senegal and we're in an international school. So we had a few nationalities. And then when I came to Montreal, that's when you really realize one, yes, how we know we're different, but you don't know. You don't know it in real life. You also realize how much we have in common, how we just all want our countries to do well and we're all sort of trying to find a way to yeah. find our, our place, like what we can do, whether it's here or back home. And, and we're doing it together, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, the African society, the African students, the African community, even now, this is my, my primary family because my family, most of my family is back home in Zimbabwe. And overseas, you know, this is, they become your family from moments when you hear sad news exactly. from back home. Mm-hmm. or your country's going through some sort of upheaval, or there's something to celebrate from back home. It was my brothers and sisters from across the continent who were with me, who I shared those most intimate moments with all the time. Yeah, um, that's true. And I'm, I'm a big believer in, you know, Ubuntu, you know. I am who I am because of who we all are. And uh, I think that's such an important thing that 
I for sure have held fast close to me because again, like I said, it, it, it motivates me a lot. For sure. For yeah. sure. And talking about mass, the uh, Miguel African Student Society, we learned so much, man. That was life in training. I think about all the problems we had organizing shows. There you go. Oh, it was a school of leadership, really. <laughs> what was the biggest lesson? And, I mean, listen, look, the gala show at that time for sure was the biggest show any McGill club puts on. I think would have an average of about four to 500 guests at yeah. the gala show. That's a, that's a humongous show. And this has been done and put together by, you know, people who are, you know, 18, 19, 20 years oh, old. Oh. And we were such a, and I believe still, are, I think the students now have taken it even to another level, which is amazing. Yeah. Such a, a cornerstone of student activity, not just at McGill, but in Montreal. We were collaborating yeah. with other universities and it was just an amazing time. And I think for me, like you said, leadership, that's the first place as out of my own comfort zone that yeah. I was able to put myself out there because yeah. it's always scary. No matter how confident some people may think uh, you are, it's always scary to put yourself out there yeah. and then to lead on the exec for that and, you know, learn how to engage with different stakeholders to learn how to inspire people, to learn how to go through crises. I, I do remember an uncomfortable point of leadership. We had a, I don't know if you remember, we had this uh, panel, not panel, it was more so a group discussion between mm-hmm. the African Student Society and the Caribbean Student Society and, and it was sort of umbrella hosted by the Black Students Network, which we're also a part of on the exec. But it was to deal with this apparent divide between Caribbean and African people. Mm-hmm. And I remember being in the heart of that and being like, okay, how are we going to make sure this doesn't boil over? Mm-hmm. As you know, young kids who are passionate can go. And I remember just, you know, trying to be as diplomatic as I could in addressing everything, but also not censoring people and allowing them to say what they said. Yeah. And ultimately getting to a place where we again see that we have so much more in common than we do in terms of what divides us. So, but that was, I remember that was distinctly uncomfortable yeah. to be around. But, and, but again, leadership, right? You start developing some of these things that allow you to navigate such sensitive topics. Yeah, I remember one time I got scammed by a DJ. <laughs> you got scammed? So I was, you know, we used to organize parties. And Where was I? Huh? We were organizing parties. I don't know. That's when I was, I was never VP social, but I was like, was it when I was president? I don't remember. But I went and I spoke to a DJ and we had an agreement and he made, I, made me sign some contract that of course I did not read properly. Uh, mm. The lawyer in you would cringe, <laughs> but <laughs> then the party got canceled and then I had to pay up. And I felt so bad and you could tell he felt bad for me, but he was like, yo, I need to make my money. Yo, <laughs> so my money. He didn't really care so much. You know, you should have come to me. I probably was there studying in the law library. Just come to me quickly. Would have gone over so the how can I get out of this? And I remember another awkward conversation around careers because, and that one I felt really bad. It was one of those conversations about what do you do and what is considered like an acceptable career or not. And then I was talking about how back home you can't really be an artist and or a singer. It's not really seen well or not respected. But the way I expressed myself was not diplomatic. It was more like, who want to be an artist or a poet or something like that? And then in the room, I did not know there was an artist. And I was just yeah. like, 
Oh God. And, uh, and, and, but that's you, right? You, you're someone, the one thing I've always loved about you that, you know, as you think, you say what you, you feel at the moment in time, right? And of course, then we're, we're, we're younger. So you have a strong opinion about certain things. Um, and that's a great thing to always have. Definitely. There are some things I learned there that I was like, okay, it's great that I learned them here in a mm. more or less safe space where we can fail and like very true. And very recover, very true. then do it at work because that'd be a different conversation. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. But going back on your uh, your comment earlier that you said on serving, there are multiple ways that you can serve. So for you, what led you to choosing policy as a way of serving? Well, I think for me, we spoke about earlier on how that's the ecosystem I grew up. Mm-hmm. Um, and more importantly, the way I was raised was really to help as many people as you can, mm. you know, when you're here. You have a short period of time on this earth and I for sure believe you can touch people individually and everyone should be striving to do that. I felt on top of that, I wanted to pick an area that would allow me to affect as many people's lives as, as possible in one go. And policy is such a macro level of being able to do that mm-hmm. where a single policy, good or bad, can affect people's, like millions of people's lives or by the stroke of a pen, the passing of a law and proper or unfortunately in many instances the not so proper implementation of those policies mm-hmm. and that was always my passion do the best it's somewhat utilitarian the greatest uh, good for the greatest amount of people and mm-hmm. i love the ability of doing that through a governance type of structure that you can serve and express and really look at what people need and design and what is really needed by people in an instant, in a moment, and take up leadership in that way and service in that way. And for me, I didn't want to also do it in a way that was paternalistic, that was implying that people didn't have the I would say intellectual ability or something of the sort to do that themselves, but more so were in situations where there was no capacity around them. There was nothing that was facilitating their ability to solve some of these issues and deal with life, whether it be a healthcare issue, whether it be an education issue, whether it be a business issue without their own agency, you know. So that's one aspect of why I wanted to get involved. And, and number two, I believe in, again, this agency aspect of many young Africans being able to just get involved. doesn't matter how young you are. You're not too young to run. If we're not too young to vote or carry guns, we are not too young to lead. Yeah. So for me, people would always say, hey, you know, wait until you get to a certain stage in life that you can be involved with this or that. And for me, I was like, no, mm-hmm. there's no real needs to wait. We can, we can learn as we go. But, and we still can inspire and we still can challenge and we still can empower as young people the likes of the Oatambos and the Nelson Mandela's and the you know late Robert Mugabe's and the Thomas Sankara's and and uh, Patrice Lumumba's these are people who started their journey mm. in their late teens early 20s mid 20s these were young people mm. you know these were not people who waited time 
for time. And, and in our context in Africa, I was so driven by, by that aspect of agency. And then the third thing was also just the urgency of now, right? We got to do it. We got to do it now because the world is progressing at a rate. Things are moving in a dynamic way that if we get left behind and ask people who tend to be younger and more in tune with certain trends are not being given the seat at the table to do so, then we're going to be in big trouble, especially as Africa has in the next 15 to 20 years, we'll have the most amount of people under the age of 35. So we have potentially the most potential to be able to really push forward our continent. So that's why policy, if I can put into those three pillars. You know, when you talk about it, it sounds so real, which is real. But I think the challenge, and I know for me, that's the part I struggle with sometimes, it can feel so far. I think we have had this discussion a couple of times. How would you advise someone or how do you make all those policies or that conversation like approachable to you? How can we make it easy for the everyday citizen, let's say, mm, mm. inform themselves or, I don't mm. know, like it just sounds big and scary. It, 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 <laughs> you know? I, I, I get you. I get you. I'll, I'll tell you, first and foremost, what I did. And, you know, again, building on the three things that I, I said, yeah. what that ultimately culminated in me doing was creating an, an organization called Governance Africa. And Governance Africa specifically, I can tell you how it came about. Yes. Was birthed from this desire to see African governments really create impact specific policies and deliver to dynamic governance, right? Mm -hmm. And what I mean by that is having the frameworks in place to then take this amazingly nicely crafted policy and then actually allow it to have impact and be delivered to the citizen on the ground. And what I felt was many young Africans were so frustrated in terms of how to do this. And so was I, because just to, you know, sort of do a little rewind and, and, and fast forward, you know, after undergrad, I went to law school at McGill as well. Mm-hmm. After law school, uh, I ended up at one of the big corporate firms in their Toronto office. Mm-hmm. And I'd also had the chance to go work with an American international firm in Shanghai, China for about four months or so. And just sort of gain that expertise. But I knew very soon that this was, again, part of tooling myself to get involved in policy in the future, mm. right? And when I was about 26, 25, 26, I knew I wasn't going to stay on in corporate law. Mm. And uh, to the dismay of my parents, <laughs> I left this. I said to them, I'm going to leave this law firm, this very secure great position where you know they've been telling me oh, son is in law is doing this what 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 and um i traveled around africa for about four five months yeah um going to different parts and especially engaging with young africans and looking at the problems that they were facing in their country and what solutions they were trying to uh, to come up with and what i found was that many people felt that they didn't want to get involved in government, mm-hmm. but they still wanted to help within the governance structure. So I said, yeah. okay, how can we do that? Because we all know, let's be very, very frank and, and real about it. The circumstance in many countries to involve in government, you have to get your hands dirty. And sometimes that's not a price many 
young Africans are willing to pay and particularly in a way that compromises their integrity. And mm-hmm. it may be the same in other parts of the world, including the West or the East or what mm-hmm. have you. But for us, it certainly is a reality too often. And people wanted to get involved. So after much pondering and just thinking about what young people wanted to do, we came up with this concept of creating an organization that sits adjacent to mm-hmm. government and is a basically a, a vehicle for young Africans of all technical abilities, whether you're in law, engineering, finance, an entrepreneur, public health, what have you, to get involved with the organization. And then we get involved with implementation of a certain program with the government in a certain set, right? And that allowed young Africans to get us and have a say in improving implementation, the development or the delivery of a you know, financial a funding facility that the Senegalese government had instituted for agribusiness for young people, mm-hmm. right? And we go in and we advise, and then the program gets rolled out. That's just one example. And that was my way of trying to bridge this gap of the need and the want uh, of young Africans to get involved in improving the situation in their country. And then the expertise that many governments, the many gaps that the governments had in terms of implementing these policies or even crafting some of these policies and connect those two through Governance Africa in the middle. And that's how I did it. And I was inspired by others as well who had done in their own areas you know, crafted their own table. I always said, you know, we always want to be involved at the table, but -hmm. sometimes you have to build your own table first. Sometimes you have to create your own space first, because I remember once a person said to me whilst I was in Kenya, you know, we can decry the fact that these older generations of African leaders don't want to give us space. And they said, well, they're not going to give it to you. You're going to have to take it. You're going to have to create your own space and you're going to have to push yourself through the door. Yeah. So for many young Africans who have that aspiration, I encourage them whenever I do see them. I said, okay, so you're interested in public health, right? Mm-hmm. You want to affect public health policy. Okay, what type of initiative on a very basic community level can you start mm-hmm. with the relevant people to start having an impact on this rural area, on this municipality, on this county, and this province, yeah. and then finally on this nation? Right? Mm-hmm. It starts small. Yeah. And You've got to build it up that way. And I think you should take the agency and create that space for yourself. And that's the one key piece of advice I would give young people. You don't have to do it on your own. You can involve yourself with colleagues, with with other citizens who are equally passionate and diversely skilled from yourself. One thing I had to learn the hard way when trying to form your own organization, you need to have the right arraignment of people who have different types of skills to make mm. the organization work. And I would, really insp- I would really encourage people to do that. And I learned a lot by doing that. I made a lot of mistakes as well, but I learned a lot. And now at this point in time, it is very little. And I don't mean to sound voices, but I, I don't think there's anything anyone can tell me I can't do because of that endeavor, because of having learned what I learned. And I will continue to learn. We have the chance and the ability to actually take agency and start something big or small. Mm-hmm. Big, yeah. And in whichever way you can, if you're someone who's an artist who wants to affect political discourse, you know, there's a way for you to do that through your art. Yeah. Through your poetry, through your paintings, through... I remember when I was in Rwanda, in your country, I was visiting someone there and we went to this art gallery for young people. 
mm-hmm. and it was a community organization that was sort of funding it and the whole point was for them to express their views through the art you know that was going to have a positive impact on the community to so get all these kinds of when it started by young people it started by young people for young people so i could always go you have to know when to cut me off because you know me i can i can keep <laughs> going on and on your simple question can be answered for 5 minutes ad nauseum i want the depth as well i want the depth no that was really insightful where do i start so you talked about how law prepared you for this policy life could you explain in what way what you think you learned from studying law and sure. then practicing corporate law well i would say from the sort of pedagogical point of view so in other words the content and the way of teaching law mm-hmm. courses like constitutional law administrative law you know courses on you know, the macroeconomic international financial law or what have you really gets you into the nuts and bolts of how policy um of how policy is formed right mm-hmm. and then how it manifests itself in the form of laws/regulations and then therefore how we have to follow these laws and regulations according to the policy that birth them mm. right because all policies require regulations yeah. the the policy is the what regulations and the law is the how mm. so i got to see and understand the process through which that happens from start to finish and then of course being able to be in a law firm and while I was dealing mostly with corporate uh, issues you get to see, you get to see how policies affect the market how mm-hmm. they affect uh, business activity how they affect different stakeholders and that was a very practical thing for me to see particularly in regard to the economy i mean the yeah. transactions we're working on were massive transactions that were in many ways structural to the way the economy was was here I remember I think in my auditing year we worked on a transaction that was the biggest M&A transaction of that year and it was worth about 12 billion at the time and that unfortunately at that time was more than the GDP of my country which was going through extremely hard economic times at the time but it was a fundamental shift within the marketplace here and I learned to understand that but always whilst dealing with the legal aspects I was always remembering the policy background Mm. right and therefore what strategic things why this policy was instituted and this house affected this deal and this is why uh, it has to happen this way and that was something that was a very active form of learning for me beyond just yeah. what i had in front of me yeah. and as opposed to taking me away from my understanding of policy you know being in the law firm enhanced my understanding of policy and then from a very technical point of view you know you're in high stakes environments you're go 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 and you're able to handle large amounts of pressure and and deliver in a short period of time in very high stakes and business critical junctures of situations so i learned a lot about myself and about how resilient i could be yeah. uh what how i was under pressure and i met amazing people there who did amazing work and i learned a, a ton from uh, both peers and and people above me the partners there and i feel i left with very good relationships to the point where uh, when i left that firm they were able to take on a lot of governance africa's legal work pro bono oh, uh, yeah. cuz there's no way we could afford them like that of course so, 
but you know, we had built that rapport. You left, you know, I left with a good reputation, and they were willing to assist with a lot of the legal work uh, from incorporation, third party agreements, web agreements. So, I mean, that's how the legal world affected how I was. And, and if I can then tie in very quickly when I went to China. So, I was working with an American firm there for a summer, about four months in Shanghai. Mm. And of course, I've never studied Chinese law, but I'm dealing with international transactions. Yeah. And if there's any place in the world you wanted to be to really see how things work on a very macro level, it was China. And, and in many ways, still is China. Mm-hmm. And I just learned, like my eyes were open wider than they've ever been. Mm. And again, seeing the importance of policy affecting a business environment literally by just the changing of one sentence of one word in that sentence can change an entire multi-billion dollar industry and how it operates and that was such a learning experience and i'm so grateful i had it and this all informed my love that i developed for policy and my conviction yeah that i really wanted to get into policy and i've always said hey I have nothing against the practice of law. It was just wasn't going to be for me. Of course. And I remember always saying, ambition is climbing the ladder. Mm-hmm. But purpose is making sure that ladder's on the right wall. Mm, that's deep. And I, and I knew it wasn't on the right wall at that time. And I think if I can say this to anyone, always make sure that ladder's on the right wall. Yeah. Uh, at least that's what was very important for me. So that's how law played its role. Yeah, that's awesome. And it's so interesting, like to echo what you're saying, if we look at our current situation, COVID-19, sadly, but you can really see how like the different policies or the different decisions that different governments are taking are having a real impact directly on their businesses. You know what I mean? Like on their economy, like you were saying. So if there was ever a time think where you can globally see the impact of policy like now this is it i mean yeah it's 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 and i mean it's very very and it's a very apt example because i think if people ever doubted the importance of public policy in a moment like this where there's a lot of reliance on government and policy uh, being coherent across uh, yeah. many federal states or even some states that don't have a federal system, it's very important for citizens to, to say, okay, I trust what the government is doing mm-hmm. or they don't because if there's no legitimacy on one level, people are not going to listen because they don't trust the government. Like, unfortunately, we have, Africa had to deal with Ebola. We saw the yeah. challenge of many people being willing to listen to government because mm-hmm. they didn't trust government when it came to what you're telling me that I have to be taken by this public health official to quarantine me because I have this disease. Wow, every time that you've, you've taken me or taken someone I know, they've never come back. There's a legitimacy issue that has to always be addressed that we're seeing is important. Uh, there's a coordination issue that we're seeing as important. And uh, more importantly, most important, there is a delivery portion that we're seeing is most important. Yeah. So can the government deliver on its promise to provide public health care mm-hmm. um, or facilitate the health care ecosystem and supply chain to tackle this crisis that we're going through? 
Mm-hmm. And I think we've seen in many instances, most governments, including the some Western governments, found wanting. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. For sure. Yeah, it's all so real. Oh my God. I'm so glad we're having this conversation now. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. And to go back on your other comment, to change uh, direction a little bit, on running Enhance Africa and uh, running teams and recruiting different people and learning mm. how uh, different skill sets are required, what would you do different going forward? As I have a different answer all the time, but I think there are common denominators that go across my um, go across my my mind or come across my mind during that time. Mm. Um, and number one is making sure from an organizational point of view, you have enough of a variety of skill set that are going to be intrinsic to running the organization from an operational point of view, Mm. not just the substantive point of view. And that's the one thing that I could have done better. And and believe you me, I had uh, a great team and great people on the team with amazing expertise. Mm -hmm. And uh, at the beginning, these are people who were very, very well versed in their different areas of expertise. And I think to add to that and support that and buttress that, I could have added more members Mm. uh, who had an operational skill set as well. And even myself, those were skills I could have further developed Mm. because... Surprise, surprise, being in corporate law doesn't necessarily mean you're an entrepreneur, right? Yeah. And that's one thing I learned. You know, it's one thing to know about business organizations, and then it's one thing to run a business or to run an organization. And that's what I would look back on and have had as a fundamental thing. Number two, that ties into one, is making sure funding and flow of cash is is well taken care of. Uh, is something that you can rely on and make sure that you're able to uh, not compromise your mission. And then number two, not compromise in any situation, any of the team members in their own livelihood. So we had certain things that kept operation costs down, like we didn't have physical offices. We were operating within a virtual space, which is great. We didn't have any of those overheads, but there were other things that would come in that would need to make sure that a lot of those aspects were well taken care of. So that was an important lesson to learn. And that's what I would, those are the two main things that I've done different because I sincerely believe in the purpose for why we were created. It was a generationally inspired situation. Mm-hmm. where we had a very specific goal of affecting governance and still do. I speak a lot in past tense because we're talking mostly about the past, but governance is still very much here. But at the same time, these are the things that could have put us in a much better stead yeah. moving forward. Well, like you said, we live and we learn, right? Now you know how to shift. And I actually also wanted to echo when you said you believe that you can pretty much do anything, like there's nothing you can't do. I agree with that. Once you realize that, ah, I can fail and start over, <laughs> you know, and life break and build. That's true. Like, and again, it, it was so humbling in many ways. Yeah. Uh, but I, I keep on reminding myself of the, of the term I heard. I don't know where I heard this phrase, break and build, break and build, uh, right? 
And that's how you adapt and that's how you move forward within business, within organizations that you have. And you have to be responsive to the evidence. You have to be responsive to how things are if you're going to survive. And um, that's one thing I always try and remind myself as, you know, we move on to the next stage of what Govan Hans will hopefully be doing in the future. Yeah. Also, you have to try and see it, right? As long as it's an idea in your head and you haven't actually executed it, there is only so much that you can plan for or oui, voila. prepare for until you actually do it. Then you're like, oh. <laughs> oh, yes, c'est vrai. It's just very, very true. You've got to try and do it. So basically, you, you know by trying, right? Mm-hmm. You have to do it. And yeah. you can't be afraid to fail. Again, I put that towards my parents, you know, growing up. They really did encouraged me to try a lot of things mm. and their qualm was never about whether I I did it perfectly it was whether I did my best in that effort right mm. hopefully this is African parents 2.0 yeah. <laughs> <laughs> But so your parents my, are very 2.0, though. Like they're very, they're very 2.0 in many ways. But yeah, they, they are. Exactly like, listen, what do you think? You you interested in that? I'm like, yeah, tell, go try it. But wait, wait if, before you go, you have to try your best. Exactly. Because we're not going to waste time and go try and see it. But you got to try your best. And that's what I always, you know, went in whenever I've gone into anything. I go in full force, mm. both feet in the water, if you will, and um, hopefully, <laughs> you know. I, I sink or I swim. And if I feel I'm, uh, I'm sinking, either there's going to be someone who's going to throw me a life raft or yeah. I got to find a way to stay above water. That's the way I've lived my life so far. Yeah. And um, no regrets in many ways. Exactly. What would you say to your younger self? So let's say like the Zua that I met 10 years ago. Or I mean, what I would say to him is, my guy, you are... You're on the you're on the right track, huh? Yeah. And what you, what you gotta try and do is make sure that you know how you're gonna execute certain things. You may know what you want to do, mm. but you have to have a more solid plan on how you're gonna do it. Because if you fail to prepare, you uh, will definitely be in a situation where you just don't execute things the way you wanted, mm. and that for me was the biggest, the biggest thing I'll say to myself because I may not have certain regrets on what I've done yeah. in my life and certain decisions I've made, but I will look back and say, Zua, how I did it, you know, could have been different. So it could have been done better. It had been mm-hmm. done in a more thoughtful manner. And I think that comes sometimes with the folly of youth and the enthusiasm of youth. So just certain ways you have to do things moving forward. Yeah. And God knows, <laughs> I've had many talking to from I can't relate to best that. friend, partners, parents, everyone has been like, yeah, 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 yeah. Like, uh, that sounds amazing. But how? Mm-hmm. Have you thought this through or that through? And that's why also it's important to never be afraid to seek counsel. Yes. I tend to be very stubborn. I will not lie. So it often becomes very difficult to convince me not to do something if my mind is set. <laughs> but also it's because I'm not afraid to ask for someone's opinion and often I'll have an answer. <laughs> to, I'll have an answer back of like you, yeah. yeah. So you either answer the answer switch you. Yeah. Okay, I can move forward, right? Right? Okay. <laughs> but the point is it's always been important for me to seek counsel from those yeah. who I consider mentors 
and those who are close to me in my life and those who can just be very, very blunt, even if I don't like what they're going to, to say. And you become more comfortable with that as you move on. I get more comfortable with that because what I want to do, I feel very convicted about and therefore would not want to do it in the wrong manner. Mm. So whether I like the answer or not, if it's going to assist me and push me towards getting to that goal that is so important to me for my life and that's ultimately going to benefit my people or what have you, lay it on, lay it on me. Yeah. And God willingly, I will take it. <laughs> yeah, for sure. What uh, drives you to go, to keep going when times are hard? A lot of it is faith. It's faith as in big F, big A, big I, big T, big H. Mm. Uh, and it encompasses everything, faith in God, faith in yourself, faith in myself, rather. Faith in the purpose that I feel and I believe is for me in my life. Yeah. And faith in what has brought me to where I am now. So I look back and I say, okay. If I was able to have this as the ultimate goal and I've reached this stage by now, mm. have faith that it will be seen out to completion, yeah. you know, because things do go wrong in life and we make mistakes in life professionally, personally, and they can be major setbacks. Often, sometimes resetting takes time. It can take three months, six months, one year, five years. Yeah. It really can. Yeah, and I think for me, having faith and a conviction in what I'm doing and where I'm going and how I've gotten to where I've gotten to really helps me to keep moving forward. And again, continuing to try to build that sense of humility and being teachable by life, by, by, by God, by, by those around you is something that I've tried my best to do and not always successful. Uh, because I have made mistakes even recently or you know what I will probably make mistakes again mm. uh, ho hopefully not too soon from now but <laughs> <laughs> they, will, they will come so, yeah <laughs> you know that's uh, that's really drives me and faith in self like I said you know you've got to really believe in yourself you've got to love yourself you got you got to invest in yourself mm. and you got to have faith that you can see this through again with the right guidance and the right tools that you can pick up along the way and again going back to what i said before i think right now there's very little someone or anyone can tell me that i i cannot do that i would believe them on and again it's not to sound arrogant or anything but it's a deep conviction Mm -hmm. uh, that I have and if I'm going to try it even if I fail I'm going to try it mm. you know because I have faith that I can try it yeah. uh, and I can give it an attempt and it's an audaciousness that again I've picked up from in many ways my parents who yeah. in their industry in their respective industries were the first of their kind to do something from my grandparents who were the first of their kind to do something. And it's something that I feel is in me through them and in many ways through, through the ancestors, you know, who paved the way for, for us to be where we are. So that's okay. the long answer to your question. 
No, I love it. I love it. I'm so excited for you as well. Man, you're going to change the world. <laughs> Your own way, of course. And we are going to uh, be doing it all together. You know, yes. Because it's certainly something that can't be done alone. And hey, I don't believe in reincarnation. So I believe we have one shot of this thing called life. <laughs> you know? And um, I think we've just got to give it our best shot. If at the end of it all, you've achieved your goal or maybe you've fallen slightly short or maybe it didn't quite happen, I'll always sit down with you and be like, hey, we tried, we tried our best, right? Yeah. And, uh, you know, if, the, if there's a nod rather than a shake of the head, I think then you've done all right. Yeah, for sure. 100%. Anything else you want to add? To- uh, so let's, so let's, let's rest now. we're going to do a whole interview of you now Mika I mean all I'd say is it's important to continue having amazing people around you I have friends like you people who we've come a long way together our milestones uh, that we've reached and you know that was always the thing for me that drew me to you Uh, I could tell you are someone who was born leader someone who was genuine and humble in the pursuit of what she wanted to do, uh, but fierce in doing so as well. And I gained inspiration from that. You know, I remember you went to do your master's before I did. You got into, um, yeah. you know, your Ivy League school there. You go, girl, you know, <laughs> do that MBA, girl. And, you know, for me, from someone like you said at the beginning, Ozo, you're my big brother, you know, but to me that, that means nothing because I was now looking up to you. Like, okay, oh. so because done this and she's achieved this milestone, you know, it's possible. And when it's your turn, like, get your shot. And lo and behold, like, I went on to do what I went on to do uh, as well, do a master's. And just things like that in terms of just how excellent you are as a person, how loving you are as a person, no matter your achievements, you've remained the same. And I think we were talking about this before we got on, but I found a video of you (laughs) when I was recording when we were in 2008. And I said, Mika, you're the same personality, you're the same. All the amazing things you've done, you're the same. <laughs> and I think it's important for everyone to just keep, keep that circle around you of people yes. who, who see and appreciate the greatness in you, the small great things and the big great things and can encourage you and push you to be your best version of yourself. And I'm very grateful that your friend of mine has been in my life and has had me on her amazing podcast, which I'm excited to, to share with others. And I'm excited for you as well. I'm Yay. excited for you and hopefully we can work on this together. Yes, of course. Thank you, Zua. Thank you so much. Yeah. And um, it's interesting you said that actually, because when I did start uh, my MBA, I was mentoring this other guy. Uh, there's a good friend of mine. I was done my first year and he was applying and we were kind of talking and he was from Sudan. He lived in the U.S., but he was new and I was kind of wor- working with him, but he was much, much older than me, you know? And he was like, oh, Mika, you're my mentor. And I remember at that time sort of being like, huh, how can I be your mentor? Like you have so many more years of experience than me, you know? But it's like in that moment, I was helping him with something that he wasn't comfortable with and, that he, and he was walking through a process that I had already walked through. So it made sense that I could mentor him you know and um, even until now like we're really good friends like when we're going through the job process you know how hard it is after like interviewing uh, yeah. Yeah. getting rejected and getting accepted like through that whole process like we kind of walked through it together 
and this is to sort of echo yeah what you were saying like it's important to have yeah good people around you and people that you can do life with you know and i'm happy that i am doing life with you zua you know and yeah. i am happy that i am doing with you too um because we can't do it alone because that's what you're saying you're not going to change the world alone i think it's each one of us doing and playing our our part you know and then he, and then it builds up into something greater and then we can leverage each other and we can help each other and we can motivate each other and and we know that we we are building something together you know i agree with you 100% and once again thank you so much hey thanks so much i will talk soon we shall already What did you think of the conversation that you just heard? Don't hesitate to leave us comments on the Facebook group or on the website jazalikmar.com. As the old adage goes, sharing is caring. So if you enjoyed it, please share it with your friends, like and subscribe. Until next time, keep striving, keep thriving and keep shining. <laughs>